0: Emerging markets debt. This is a big question mark right now for a lot of fund managers. You have seen outflows continue from the largest emerging markets debt ETF and emerging market high yield yields are currently lower than similarly rated debt yields in the U.S. Uh, this has only occurred twice in both instances. It has reversed in less than one month. Here to talk about that with us, Damian Sassauer, our own of Bloomberg Intelligence, who focused focuses on everything having to do with emerging markets. Thank you so much for being with us. So tell us what is going on and why has there been this resilience in emerging markets that you haven't seen as much in other U.S. asset classes?
3: Well, first of all, happy year of the dog, Lisa Pim. Um, so well, you. know, you. Yeah, no, for you to- yeah, of course. You know, China is emerging market. So anyway, um yeah. So let's talk about emerging market high yield relative to U.S. high yield. So, yes, only twice before since 2012 have emerging market high yield yields, well, yield to worst, uh, uh, drop below or dip below U.S. high yield. And the reason for that, quite frankly, is because U.S. high yield month to date has sold off at a quicker pace. And the reason for that is the prevalence of call features in U.S. junk debt, right? So what. That that does is it adds extension risk. So when yields are rising, you see an exaggerated impa- well an exaggerated effect on U.S. high yield relative to EM high yield. And that's actually what we're seeing right now.
0: But let's talk about the actual market dynamic, because you pointed out something that was fascinating, I thought, which is the bid-ask spread, basically the differential of what people want, the (laughs) price that people want to sell the bond for versus what people are offering to buy. It's widening out, a sign of illiquidity uh, in the emerging market complex. Can you talk about that? And what does this signify to you?
3: Well, it's happening in U.S. high yield as well, but yes, in EM high yield, what it signifies for me, and you really have to kind of drill down and see exactly which uh, junk bonds in emerging markets are, are effectively where the bid offer spreads are widening. And it's these single B, these, you know, I mean, Zambia or Angola, these kind of smaller, small in terms of market value, small in terms of the size of their country and their economies there's just no demand there the bids aren't there when liquidity you know kind of dries up like we saw last Friday and so when that happens you know it gives a lot of investors cause for concern and what they are then forced to do especially the big fund managers is they have to sell their higher quality investment grade debt in order to meet redemptions which as we all know are coming through this month i mean we've seen that not just in the world's largest emerging market bond ETF but in all emerging market debt ETFs hard currency that is we've seen a lot of redemptions month to date and we're halfway through and the active funds <laughs> they have to meet redemptions at the end of this month and uh, if they're seeing the same trend we're seeing uh, in ETFs it could get uh, it could get a little uglier
2: so let me understand this Damien uh, if an investor wants to lend their money to a middling credit, emerging market company, they're going to receive less money than if they decide to lend their money to a similar rated company in the United States,
4: right? Well,
3: Pim, let's just uh, differentiate. I, I mean, it's really sovereign debt, right? I mean, we're talking about a country,
2: not a company, okay. right? all right. Which oh, is so, even worse right. to your point. So, I mean, so so you're right. So, 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 so you're telling me that if I wanna lend my money to the government of Angola, yes. I'm gonna get less than if I lend my money to the United States government.
3: Or to the United States, high an equivalently uh, rated U.S.
2: high-yield corporate. Okay. So, and so the yeah. reason for this is not because the United States is a better or worse bet, although you could certainly make the case that it might be yeah. a better bet. It's because no one wants to buy. Your Angolan sovereign debt. So you stick it in the drawer and you look <laughs> for something that someone will buy and then it shows up and it goes, Oh yeah, US debt. We'll sell that because we know someone will buy it. But that.
3: therein lies the opportunity pin because what it does is these fund managers are forced to sell higher quality, better bonds in order to meet in order to raise cash to meet redemptions, right? So you're seeing these kind of outliers. So and and, and they're exaggerated in environments like this. And this is where, you know, the real savvy EM fund managers, you know, really earn their key right if they're able to kind of manage their cash balances. so what
2: is one of these so what is one of these uh sort of savvy investments that is being thrown out because someone is trying to meet a redemption call and they can't find anyone to you know buy their paper from angola at a price (laughs) that they're willing to take well
3: and, and and i mean look the two largest most liquid credits in em high yield are argentina and petrobras right? I mean, they are huge issuers of high yield emerging market debt. And invariably, if you need to sell um, EM high yield debt to meet redemptions, I would imagine those
2: are a source of liquidity for fund managers. So learn Portuguese, learn Spanish, and line (laughs) up for some Petrobras and some Argentine bonds. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah.
0: So, so here's my question right now. How much of this is a currency bet? Because you did see a bit more dollar strength. I mean, obviously now, mm. I, I mean, I don't want to say that a bit more, because now we're back at four-year lows uh, with the dollar. But, you know, there was a little bit more strength, which would which would make these investments less valuable for people who hadn't hedged, right? Because EM currencies were losing value against the dollar. Uh, so can you talk to us about how much that plays into this? Or is this something totally different? I mean, different?
3: at least it's all about the dollar and EM local currency especially today. And I mean, this has been a big story all day long with the dollar declining to three-year lows. But I mean, it has fully decoupled from safe haven, safe haven assets such as the Swiss franc, the yen, and gold. And um, and that's good for emerging markets for now, right? Because, you know, that's a, it's basically EM and commodities are, are continuing to perform well. But, it is a, in fact, it is the second most crowded short in global financial markets today, if you listen to Bank of America. And I just am not sure how long dollar bears can hold on given the magnitude of this week's move.
0: OK, so let's say the dollar does strengthen. How much of a problem is that for these investments?
3: Oh, yeah, I think that's going to be a problem, certainly for EM local currency debt. I mean, I've seen a lot of emerging market managers come and go, you know, getting bearish on the dollar. It's it's just, you know, it, 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 it works when it works. And when it
0: doesn't, it really, really doesn't. How much fear are you uh, hearing from portfolio managers? You know, right I now?
3: don't think it's a lot of fear, really. I think it's just more. Um, it, it, it's just more that people are trying to get accustomed to this new paradigm. I mean, we are, yields are rising. I mean, we have bottomed in U.S. yields, and the impact on total returns in all emerging market asset classes, hard and local currency, here to date, have been you know materially impacted by rising U.S. yields. It has just dominated the impact on spread compression and carry. So, um, so that's a bad thing.
2: <laughs> What happens if this continues?
3: Um, well, I don't know how much higher U- U.S. yields are going to go. We're going to have to bring Ira Jersey in to answer that question. But All right, the- well, let's say you get the 10-year <laughs> at 3%. Um, you know, I i mean, well, we're almost there. We're only 12 bips away, right? So I think, I think the U.S. 10-year, look, if it continues to go, if it goes to three and a quarter, three and a half, I think Gina sent 4%. I mean- Things can get really bad for emerging markets at that point, sure. But um, but for now, I think you know, it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be steady sale until the end of the month, and we see what redemptions have in store for us.
2: All right, thanks very much. Uh, you're gonna Pleasure. keep us informed as always.
3: He's got they-
0: great research. I highly recommend it. Check it out.
2: <laughs> yes,
0: Damien Sassauer.
2: That is Damien Sassauer. He's our fixed income strategist when it comes to Bloomberg Intelligence, all about emerging market debt. Approximately 140,000 people are diagnosed with colon cancer in the United States and over 50,000 people die from it annually. Here to help us understand this disease and ways to combat it are Cameron Reynolds. He is the president and the chief executive of Volition RX and uh, he joins us from London. Cameron, thank you very much for being with us. Tell us about your company and about how you became involved with Volition RX.
5: Yes, I think cancer is something which touches everyone and uh, at Volition we've developed uh, a range of different tests for different types of cancer, uh, beginning with colorectal cancer as you, as you mentioned and ultimately the, the, the way, best way to treat cancer, short of a cure, which is unfortunately not, not upon us is to find it early and get the cancer removed. And if you can do that in stage one or stage two or as a precancerous polyp, then your chances of surviving more than five years are very high, well over 90 or 95%. So that's what we're developing, a range of different uh, blood tests um, which can detect cancer and uh, in in a routine blood test, which means it can be part of your normal blood work at, at a very low cost.
0: Cameron, talking about the cost, that's what I wanted to pick up on, because a colonoscopy, which is the traditional uh, method of detecting colon cancer, is uh, very challenging, and people have to be partially uh, anesthetized and drink all sorts of stuff and have somebody bring them home. (laughs) I mean, it's a big, complicated ordeal. I imagine it's also pretty expensive. Can you give us a sense of what the price differential would be uh, from the test that you're developing versus a colonoscopy?
5: yeah the colonoscopy is a very good test as far as accuracy goes, but as you say it 's very unpleasant and uh, costly, um, depending on what what state you 're in, um, <clears throat> It can range up to three or four or five or six thousand dollars, so you normally don 't see that except through the copay, but the copay can be very large as well. So unfortunately, because of its cost and unpleasantness, there's about 30 million Americans who are not currently screened for colon cancer. So um, one of the ways of getting around that is to have a a low-cost blood test. Um, Ours is on a very simple platform called ELISA. So it's part of your routine blood work. And we aim to price around the $100 range. So it's very affordable for pretty much everyone. And because it's affordable and the decision is really taken out of your hands, if the doctor ticks that extra box, um, like your cholesterol test, like your PSA, like all the blood tests you currently have, that really should put compliance way higher than it is now. Compliance is not something people talk about a lot, but um, if you're not doing the test, the accuracy is very easy to, to work out, which is zero. So by doing a very routine blood test, it's the best way of getting the most people screened. And if you do screen and you can find the cancer early, normally you're in very good shape.
2: Talking about tests, can you give us an update on your diagnostic test? Is that already launched in Europe?
5: Um, We're just in the process now of doing some very large trials in Europe. Uh, We'll have about 15,000 patient samples run this year. Um, We've made public, we're about to announce this month, uh, the first readout on the first of those trials, which is 680 patients, um, which we haven't got the data from, but we're very hopeful um, to announce it soon, and we're very hopeful that it will show something uh, very unique, which is ability to detect early-stage cancer and pre-cancer. Again, that's where you really want to be diagnosed before it's metastasized, before you need chemotherapy and all those things. So um, we'll have a readout on on that very soon, and then uh, we have the two big trials in Europe underway this year, which we'll have readouts on both of them this year as well. So we're very hopeful of having a product on the market uh, for next year in Europe, um, which is CE marked, which means we can sell in 28 European countries to to anyone uh, clinically.
0: Karen, just preliminary uh, studies, do they show that the accuracy is enough to replace colonoscopies? Or would this be an additional test uh, that would be done for people who might shy away from the procedure that is more invasive? And So in other words, this might be another cost rather than reducing the cost of the colonoscopy because it wouldn't be a replacement.
5: Yeah, no, I think ultimately if you're currently having a colonoscopy, if you can afford it, you are prepared to do it. My, my advice and the, the correct advice is to continue taking it. It's a very accurate test, and, uh, and polyps can be removed straight away. But the tragedy is that 30, uh, 35% of Americans of screening age are either not up to date or have never been screened. So the only way to reduce the massive cost, not only on the healthcare system, um, late-stage cancer patients cost uh, up to half a million dollars to, um, to, for the last few years of their life, and it's not a very pleasant few years. The only way to really deal with that, um, to get those people screened, is is a a low-cost, easy-to-run routine blood test. So... um, yes it's correct if you if you are positive you need a colonoscopy to, to follow it up but it's a way of, of driving people who have a, a much higher chance of having cancer because right. they're positive in our test from actually having a colonoscopy so ultimately being a very low cost test it would, it would save a lot of money from the healthcare system because it's um, apart from the human toil it's extremely expensive uh, treating late stage cancer patients right. so we, we think it's the only way of really dealing with that 30-35% that of people who just refuse to take a colonoscopy
0: Well, I, I want to push back a little bit because because there are other blood yep. tests that, you know, for example, uh, a really uh, not very accurate one for say ovarian cancer, uh, and, and you know, one one concern with blood tests that have limited accuracy is that they lead to a lot more unnecessary testing um, and might end up adding to costs just by virtue of uh, you know extra perhaps unneeded surveillance uh, and 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 false alarms. I mean, how do you how do you respond to that?
5: No, that's absolutely correct. You've got to be very careful. You're not just diagnosing a small number of late-stage cancers, which many um, routine blood tests do do. So when you're looking at our data, which is coming up very soon, uh, look to, if you can find the cancer early and a, and a good percentage of them, um, you've got to be in the 70 or 80% or more or range of getting those numbers of cancers. If you can do that at a low cost, then you are saving the system a lot of money. You're very correct, though. If you look at a lot of screening um, modalities, um, mammography, the PSA for prostate, they're very widely carried out, but they're under a lot of criticism because if they can add more burden to the healthcare system. But if, if you do what we're aiming to do, and we'll get a good readout on that in a, in, a, in this month, is if you can do it in a very low-cost routine test, you then drive the people who are positive towards colonoscopies and then you save them <clears throat> at an early stage to have the treatment, which then not only saves the healthcare system the half a million dollars odd in, in the treatment, but also gives that person another 10 or 20 years or 30 years of productive life. So there is a lot of concern out there and very well judged um, concern that you don't want to over-diagnose and the PSA for prostate is probably the ultimate example. But if our, if our test is as accurate as we think it's uh, hoping has been in the, in the previous trials, then we'd be in, a, in a, a very rare category of an accurate blood test that's routine, that is also low cost. And one thing which is also important is there's also a small amount of blood, so it's not a separate blood draw, it's, so it can be done in your normal lab, you don't have to send it off somewhere else. Um, I think if we can show all of that, which we're hopeful of, then I think we'll be very unique and add a tremendous amount to the healthcare system and save an awful lot of suffering.
0: Cameron Re- Reynolds, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Cameron Reynolds is president and chief executive officer of Volition RX, which is based in London and is currently testing a blood test uh, to detect colon cancer and avoid. Well, not avoid colonoscopies, but perhaps uh, direct a greater number of people to get them uh, should they test positive.
2: I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal.
0: I want to turn our attention to infrastructure the uh, president did un- uh, release a plan for how to unleash 1.5 trillion dollars of investments in the u.s infrastructure here to talk about that with us is christina swallow president of the american society of civil engineers coming to us from washington dc christina i think that there is one really big question right now which is how to spend this money. I mean, aside from the fact that this isn't going to necessarily uh, get done in the form that he's proposing, but what needs to happen right now? So from your perspective, let's start there.
1: So from our perspective, we look at all categories, 16 categories of infrastructure, and we recognize that there's a $2 trillion investment gap. So when we're starting to look at that, we need to make sure that we prioritize Any funding that we put towards that, we prioritize it and put it towards projects that will have the most substantial economic and public benefit. We need to really make sure that we're prioritizing our projects and spending the money where it will have the most long-term benefit.
2: Okay, I mean that seems reasonable. Maybe we could go through some of the states that specifically need this kind of infrastructure spending. If we can, let's start with Massachusetts. Uh, Massachusetts, uh, by many measures, has an issue with its water system. They're estimates that it needs about a seven and a half billion dollar uh, flow of money in order to fix the water infrastructure. Is that something that you see as being uh, in, in, as you just described? You know, like the biggest bang for the buck.
1: So definitely, as, as Americans, every single American should be able to have, have access to quality drinking water as we need it. So that is definitely something. It's a public health and a safety issue, right, having proper treatment and availability of water. So that is definitely something that should be a priority. On a national level, we know that our surface transportation system is the largest piece of that infrastructure investment gap. So that's also a place where you can see the need to invest um as a priority because it drives so much of our economy.
0: Christina, if you were designing the infrastructure plan, what would be your first location and first project?
1: That's a good question. I really, I don't know that I have a first location, a first project. I would want to look probably first at our transportation system. Like I mentioned, it's half of the gap and it drives, I mean, it really does drive our economy.
0: The infrastructure, the uh, the sort of uh, transportation system in urban settings or in rural settings?
1: urban settings have the, the most impact on us as people as well as on safety. When you consider that, on average, 188 million trips are made over structurally deficient bridges each day, that's something that's definitely an area that we want to make sure we focus on to improve safety and also reduce congestion so uh, our, our freight bottlenecks don't continue to exist. So that's a focus, but we can't ignore our rural areas, because the freight travels across the nation. And so we need to make sure rural areas are also maintained. But definitely urban areas needs to be a focus.
0: There was more of a focus, it seems, from the president's plan on the rural areas and sort of fortifying the rural grid. Uh, Do you think that is uh, a bad approach?
1: I think the president is looking at the fact that our gut instinct often is to fund the urban areas and just recognizing the fact that if we ignore the the rural areas, we will be um, shortchanging ourselves. I think about so many of the states that, that have these major freight networks, you know, when you think about I-40 and I-80 and I-10, that cross these significant areas of just rural. If we don't make sure that those are maintained, um, our the freight won't be able to get to where it's going. So we need to make sure that we also focus on that. And I think that was the intent, was just to make sure we don't ignore it.
2: Okay, now the American uh, Society of Civil Engineers, you're based in Reston, Virginia. So maybe just even close to Virginia, we can talk about Maryland. Because if you live anywhere near uh, the nation's capital, you know that you face daily disruptions, right? There was this big uh, steam pipe explosion last June. What about the deficient bridges there? There's some estimates that 6% of them are are deficient. The average commute to work is over uh, 32 minutes. What kind of money and what specific roads or infrastructure would you recommend that we focus on?
1: We've talked about bridges, and we definitely know in the D.C. area they're working on improving the Frederick Douglass Bridge. That's one that's been talked about for a really long time, and they're finally at the point where they're going to be investing in that I think we also need to look, when you look at that whole D.C. metro area, how do we increase investment in transit? Metro has been doing a really good job recently at focusing on that, but they could still use some additional investment. And that would help alleviate some of the the congestion on the roads if people went back to trusting the transit system. So there's opportunities there, not just to invest in the roads and the bridges, but also to invest in transit. On a national level, transit received our lowest grade at a D minus.
0: You probably have a lot of discussions with some of the workers who would be trying to design and make these infrastructure projects happen. Are there enough people in this country at this point to fill the jobs that would be required with some kind of substantial infrastructure plan?
1: people are there. Um, if the funding came through, it wouldn't come through all tomorrow. It would come out in a phased, phased manner, in which case um, the people that are already in the industries would be able to ramp up and do additional work and capacity as we continue to develop new entry-level entry workers into the broad spectrum of the industry. So the money would come The current workforce would step up and additional workers would enter. And we would start to see changes in our infrastructure within the next three to five years. But overall, to bring the grades from a D plus to everyone at a B, it's going to take us decades. We didn't get here in a matter of a short time frame, and we're not going to get out of it in a short time frame either. It's going to take time.
2: What's the position of the American Society of Civil Engineers on increasing the the federal gasoline tax in order to add more money to the highway trust fund?
1: We've supported increasing the federal gas tax for years. It hasn't been increased since 1993, and its buying power is significantly decreased as a result. Additionally, we know cars, cars have become more fuel-efficient, so we need to find a way to increase investment today. And we're um, excited about the fact that the U.S. Chamber, and even I heard yesterday the president, support the concept of a 25-cent or increase in the gas tax. That will help us meet the needs today, but also modernize and improve our system for the 21st century.
0: Christina, I'm just wondering, you said that this problem has taken decades to happen and will take probably decades to fix, even with some uh, substantial appropriations in the near term. Whose fault was it that there wasn't more real-time investment made?
1: think that uh, that we're, we all share a little bit of that. I think that there's the concept that when the infrastructure was built, there wasn't a lot of thought about the long-term ongoing maintenance. It was we built it, and and it was a great success. You think about the major construction of of the early 20th century and how successful those were, but the con but nobody was really thinking about the long-term maintenance of those projects, or even that a project that was built in the early 1900s with would would be expected to be still functioning today, a century later, I visited a lock system in Seattle that celebrated its centennial last summer. So there's a lot of pieces of this. We weren't thinking about the long-term maintenance. We weren't expecting the projects to have to last as long as they were. And so we've underinvested for a full generation. And now it's time that we all, at all levels of government and private, step up and start increasing that investment and modernize our system.
2: Um, One of the things we've been focused on is also uh, the combination of spending but also the goals. In other words, whether there is a specific economic goal other than saying, all right, yes, we want better roads, we want better uh, bridges. But, for example, in the Mississippi— the idea that you would have a specific goal that would either cut wait times for soybean farmers and exporters in order to be able to get their products to market. Is there any specific economic goal that you can point to that we would then focus on so that we would know whether we're spending the money on the right kinds of infrastructure projects?
1: So Each project is going to have to have its own its own goals. But on a national level, we know that if we don't invest the additional $2 trillion needed between now and 2025, our economy will suffer a $3.9 trillion loss in our GDP. So there is definitely an economic impact to this. It's not just a public health and safety issue, which we talk about a lot in terms of the, the water systems and the bridges, but it also impacts our economy. And we need to invest. I mean, that's not, it's not just the GDP that will be impacted. $7 trillion in lost business sales, 2.5 million, jo- uh, million jobs lost in 2025 alone. There are economic impacts to underinvesting in our infrastructure.
2: I want to thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, Christina Swallow, president of the American Society of uh, Civil Engineers. They are based in uh, Reston, Virginia. We want to visit now with Robert Langrith. He is our senior healthcare reporter for Bloomberg. And Robert, just to set out a little bit about Amazon and the healthcare industry, Amazon does about $177 billion worth of business a year. And on its most recent conference call, the earnings call, one of the executives spoke about the Amazon business offering. This was in October. And they were saying that the one of the institutions, one of the areas that they are targeting with this offering, along with schools, laboratories, government agencies, is the healthcare industry for dentists, doctors, hospitals. We're talking about gloves, syringes, other kind of healthcare items. What is Amazon doing, and who is going to feel the heat?
4: Well, uh, so I. You know, there's been a lot of buzz about what is Amazon in the last several months, about what is Amazon going to do in healthcare. Uh, there's been uh, talk, uh, uh, and they've, I guess, been quietly looking at, you know, for years what to do in the, in the drug sector. Uh, and certainly that's affected lots of drug-related stocks. Uh, but what they... Uh, appear to already be doing, and they have been kind of working on it for a couple of years, is in their, you know, Amazon business, they want to expand it B2B. And this is a way, and of course, these a huge market for uh, healthcare supplies. So they are kind of starting in healthcare uh, in, a, in, I guess, a small way on kind of basic supplies. And what our sources have said is you know, one way to start to penetrate the supply market is uh, for, you know, medical goods, uh, is before you get to the high tech, highly regulated stuff like medical devices and drugs, which are you know complicated, sometimes with special delivery requirements, lots of regulations. You can start with the simple stuff, you know, gloves, bandages, sutures, uh, stuff that, and, and 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 you can start with doctors' offices, and um, and that is a market that is, uh, from the uh, sources we talked to, say are underserved compared to, uh, you know, the the, the more a more acute hospital market, and hospitals have been buying up lots of doctors' offices, so now they have lots of far-flung offices, and the distribution isn't as efficient because you know their distribution systems are built for the central hospital. So Amazon is trying to you know get into this sector in a big way, establish a foothold, uh, you know, in the big medical supplies market, and it's uh, been uh, talking to hospitals uh, and with the focus on outpatient clinics and. Uh, and that could potentially threaten, you know, medical supply companies. Uh, there's a company, Henry Schein, uh, that um, has uh, calls on doctors' offices, veterinarians, dentists. Uh, there's another company, owns and Minor, uh, and they acknowledged in a conference call yesterday that hey, Amazon's talking to our customers. Uh, and so far, you know, Amazon is more in the doctor's office where they're talking to our big hospital customers. Uh, So this is a way for Amazon to start to get into the medical supply market. Uh, but uh, And if this works, I would imagine they would uh, ramp up to more expensive, higher-tech stuff eventually.
0: Robert, is this stuff mostly the the sort of gloves and the sutures and the Band-Aids? I mean, are these things low-profit margin types of goods? In other words, are they starting – is this an experiment for them? uh, Or is this lucrative in its own Right.
4: Well, I mean, if you just look at, you know, the Henry Schein itself, that's one company that supplies this stuff. They they alone have, a, you know, a few billion dollars in sales in you know, medical supply and several more billion dollars in dental supply. So, I mean, they're like, a I think, around, a you know, somewhere around $10 billion in revenue company. Uh and, you know, that's just one company. So uh, I'm sure it's nowhere near as... And the other thing about Amazon is that it's been about, you know, revenue growth. And investors have wanted to see, you know, uh, sterling a revenue growth, kind of profits come later. They've been rewarded for the revenue growth in new markets, and they're looking for new markets to go get into. And, you know, healthcare is one of the big, big, big markets. They're not in now and in much of a way.
2: R- Rob, uh, I've, I've, you know, the... Uh the issue of Amazon taking over other businesses is not brand new. Where have all these, I mean, Robert, where have all these businesses been? Are they waiting for Amazon to come in and give them competition? Because doesn't this apply to just about any kind of product and service that's delivered to your door?
4: Um, yeah, it potentially does. But And the one reason that, you know, doctors' offices, dental clinics, outpatient surgery clinics uh, – uh, these types of uh, clinics and smaller operations work because you know they also have to order office supplies and basic stuff too, and uh, so they can. It, it, it works very well because some of them may already be ordering office supply supplies from Amazon Business, and if you yeah. throw in bandages and sutures and other basic medical supplies that don't have to be refrigerated, aren't being implanted in the patients, so there's not complicated uh, regulation there. They can combine the order; it fits very well. And this stuff, you know, it's business, basic stuff can be stored in the warehouse without refrigeration. It's not, not the high-tech stuff yet, and they can build up to the higher-tech stuff. So it's a good starting point yeah. uh, for Amazon. Now, one thing, and they've been, you know, talking to some major hospital systems, uh, you know, over about, you know, what they can do in health uh, over the past, you know, Several months uh, to a year. Yeah. We talked to one that's been talking to Amazon for a year. Another one that's been talking to Amazon uh, for you know three to six months. Uh, and Amazon would be a big change from the way things are done because right. they would have at, ordered at hospitals and health systems because a lot of the um, right. Supplies are on a contract basis now. It's kind of a fixed price at my last or six months a year. And you'll have to see Amazon whether Amazon nice can really build
0: up with... that relationship with hospitals. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Robert Langworth, health care reporter, senior health care reporter for Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg p podcast.
2: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.
0: I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown
1: has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state